Welcome to TSX Quarterly, the podcast that brings you publicly available earnings calls from companies listed on the Toronto Stock Exchange in one convenient location. Gone are the days of looking through confusing websites. You'll find the important information right here. Enjoy the call. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to Parkland Corporation's 2021 Q2 Results Analyst Call. At this time, all lines are in listen-only mode. Following the presentation, we will conduct a question and answer session. If at any time during this call you require immediate assistance, please press star zero for the operator. This call is being recorded on Friday, August 6, 2021. I'd now like to turn the conference over to Brad Monaco, Director, Capital Markets for Parkland. Please go ahead. Thank you. With me today on the call are Bob Espy, President and CEO, Marcel Tunison, Chief Financial Officer, and Donna Sanker, President of Parkland Canada. This call is webcast and I encourage listeners to follow along with the supporting slides. We will go through our prepared remarks, then open it up for questions from the investment community. Please limit yourself to one question and a follow-up as necessary. And if you have other questions, re-enter the queue. We would ask analysts to follow up directly with the capital markets team afterwards for any detailed modeling type questions. During our call today, we may make forward-looking statements related to expected future performance. These statements are based on current views and assumptions and are subject to uncertainties which are difficult to predict. These uncertainties include, but are not limited to, expected operating results and industry conditions, among other factors. Risk factors applicable to our business are set out in our annual information form and management's discussion and analysis. We will also be discussing non-GAAP measures, which do not have any standardized meanings prescribed by GAAP. These measures are identified and defined in Parkland's continuous disclosure documents, which are available on our website or CDAR. Please refer to these documents as they identify factors which may cause actual results to differ materially from any forward-looking statements. Dollar amounts discussed in today's call are expressed in Canadian dollars unless otherwise noted. I'll now turn the call over to Bob. Great. Thanks, Brad. And good morning, everybody, and welcome. We appreciate you taking the time to join us today. I would uh, like to welcome Donna to today's call to discuss our strong on-the-run convenience store performance and provide some insights into our recently announced ultra-fast charger network in British Columbia, which we expect to be ready for summer driving season in 2022. Picture on today's cover slide showcases our proprietary on-the-run convenience store brand, which features heavily in our performance year-to-date and our growth trajectory. On-the-run, or Marche Express, as it's known in Quebec, underpins our strategy of creating food and convenience destinations and is key in helping our customers make the most of every stop. Our network development team built a lot of momentum through the first half of 2021. They completed phase four of our expansion plan and added 60 new on-the-run retail stores. We currently have over 330 on-the-run convenience stores in the Canadian market. And in the second half of the year, we will enter phase five of our expansion plan, which includes an advanced dealer offering. As we move towards our target of 1,000 on-the-run Marsha Express in the Canadian market, we will leverage the unique characteristic of our network to develop large and express format convenience stores to meet the diverse needs of our customers. 
Our on-the-run convenience brand is highly scalable and provides a convenience growth platform across our entire portfolio. Having bought the license for on-the-run in the U.S., we've already opened our first location and are positioned to rapidly expand this throughout both our company-owned and dealer network. We see big opportunity to continue to exp- the expansion of our food and convenience business and look forward to sharing more at Investor Day on November 16th. We've delivered robust first half 2021 performance and continue to advance our proven strategy through consistent operational execution, organic growth, financial discipline, and accretive acquisition. I'm very proud of our teams who continue to deliver exemplary customer service and grow our market share. We have seized the opportunity through COVID to fine tune our operations, streamline our cost structure, increase efficiency, and win new business. This gives us tremendous upside potential as markets continue to recover. A combination of green shoots of macroeconomic recovery across our business, strong marketing results, and and safe and reliable operations at the Burnaby Refinery helped deliver a 69% increase in year-over-year adjusted EBITDA. We remain focused on our long-term growth strategy and are very confident in our trajectory. Our ambition for $2 billion of run rate EBITDA by the end of 2025 is firmly on track. We have a proven track record of discipline value creation, built on a foundation of continuous organic growth. We've been very acquisitive since the end of 2020, with a constant stream of highly accretive and complementary deals. Since our Q3 2020 results, we have announced or closed 12 transactions across Canada, the U.S., and our international operations. Collectively, the acquisitions have totaled approximately 800 million Canadian dollars. They are immediately accretive to cash flow per share and expected to be approximately 8% accretive on a post-synergy basis. We continue to advance our co-processing innovation at the Burnaby Refinery maintaining the previous quarter's co-processing record of 25 million litres. This is a made-in-Canada success story that that we are very proud of. In addition, we announced plans to launch the largest ultra-fast electric vehicle charging network in British Columbia by SiteCount, which is a natural extension of our energy transition activity. We've been highly disciplined in launching this business in a market with the most promising emerging demand profile. We see opportunity to be our customer's energy partner of choice and to make our convenience retail business a compelling destination for charging. Donna will speak more about this shortly. Parkland has a very exciting future, and you can count on us to remain focused on maintaining our financial strength and delivering sustainable long-term growth on a per-share basis. I would now like to pass over to Marcel to discuss the second quarter results. Thank you, Bob, and good morning, everyone, and thank you for joining the call. I know that we are competing with the Olympics this morning, so I do appreciate that everyone has dialed in. So when we turn to slide four and a summary of our financial results. So we delivered a quarter two adjusted EBITDA of $322 million, which is up nearly 70% compared to Q2 of last year. While COVID continues to impact the broader economy, each area of our business delivered underlying growth compared to last year. Driven by compelling customer offers, margin strength, and acquisition, our marketing businesses have continued to grow 
through a challenging operating environment. It's worth to note that relative to 2019 year to date, the adjusted EBITDA in our combined marketing business is up 12%. In supply, we are markedly up from 2020 as the prior year included a scheduled turnaround, which impacted both quarter one and quarter two. Including 25 million liters of biofeedstock co-processing, we delivered a composite refinery utilization of 97% in the quarter and the refinery continues to be a cash generator. In quarter two, we have started to see the early signs of the post-COVID recovery, resulting in higher fuel demand. I would like to direct your attention to the chart on the right side of the slide, where we've overlaid 2019, 2020, and 2021 retail volumes in the retail business in Canada. And there were two things that I would like to point out on this chart. So, Number one, we have seen positive trends in the broader economy relative to 2020, with volumes up more than 15% ahead of the 2020 levels. However, while recovery has been strong, it is still bumpy. As you can see in April of this year, which featured some COVID-related uh, lockdowns in a number of Canadian provinces. But important to point out as well is that this lockdown had a much smaller impact than the lockdowns in the same period in 2020. Uh, when we were in our first kind of wave of COVID-related lockdowns. The second takeaway is really that there's a lot more upside uh, to go in the recovery. So although the gap is narrowing, we still have a way to go before returning to 2019 levels on the volume side. And to put that uh, in context, total retail volumes in the quarter were approximately 15% behind 2019, but we have been improving each month. And so, for example, in July, you know, we are within 10% of the 2019 demand levels. And across our portfolio in the U.S. and in the international business, we see a similar pattern. The U.S. is a few months ahead of Canada, and the international markets are generally a little bit behind Canadian recovery. And so against this backdrop, we have been able to grow the profitability of our marketing business through a sustainable cost reductions and robust unit margins. And we are well positioned to take advantage of, uh, you know, of the when volumes return after um, after um, COVID ends. <clears throat> Moving to slide five, the segmented overview. I'll start with Canada, where we've delivered 101 million of adjusted EBITDA in quarter two. That's eight million higher than the prior year, driven by improving volumes. I already talked about it continued healthy retail margins, C-store growth, and strong commercial performance. Same-store sales growth, excluding cigarettes, was 8.6%, driven by strength in major categories, including the center of store, beverages, triple O's, and car wash. Importantly, this also resulted in an improvement in gross margin, as our data anal analytics capability has improved in-store margins. And we have upped our game materially in this regard, and Donna will touch on that a little bit later. The international segment delivered 66 million of adjusted EBITDA, which is up 12 million relative to prior year. This performance was driven by a strong base business and per unit margins and continue to benefit from sustainable cost control initiatives. In addition, our teams continue to optimize margins in our wholesale supply business. At a macro level, the Caribbean region continues to see varying impacts from COVID. For example, the Dominican Republic is open for business, Cayman is currently in lockdown, and other markets such as Barbados and St. Kitts are re-entering some form of lockdown at the moment. 
So against this backdrop, we continue to see strength in our business, and in the markets that reopened, we have, del we have delivered meaningful volume and convenience store growth, demonstrating the quality and appeal of our offer. Our business is well positioned to benefit from a regional recovery, and we do see green shoots in the tourism industry with all countries working hard to open for the late fall tourist season. So just to provide some additional color, our sales channel indicates strong cruise ship bookings towards the end of the year. Further, jet is, while jet is still down uh, at about 30 to 35 percent of 2019 levels, airline nominations are beginning to pick up, which provides optimism and upside potential for late 2021 and beyond. Shifting to the U.S., we delivered 31 million of adjusted EBITDA in Q2. That was up over 10 percent from 2020. And we continue to deliver growth in our U.S. business through a combination of acquisitions, organic growth, and synergy capture. We're pleased to welcome the Conrad and Bischoff team to Parkland. That happened in quarter two, which adds a fourth regional operating center in the Pacific Northwest and provides a new platform for growth for Parkland in the U.S. And as I alluded to in the previous slide, the U.S. is recovering well from COVID-19 with retail volumes approaching 2019 levels and strong convenience store margins as well. That said, pockets of our U.S. business have yet to fully recover, particularly our marine business in Florida. However, the team in Florida have done a great job in offsetting this headwind through continued diversification of the business, and so there's upside in the recovery. As you likely know from the broader macroeconomic data, cost inflation is real in the U.S., and we see wages for drivers and store personnel go up. However, you know, we are managing to really pass these costs, um, you know, onto the, to the, uh, into the prices and into the markets uh, and recover those additional costs as well. Like other areas in the business, we've done a great job in the U.S. offsetting the COVID impacts through operational execution and underlying organic growth while positioning ourselves for additional upside as the markets fully recover. Our supply business delivered excellent uh, second quarter results with 154 million of adjusted EBITDA. That's up 119 million compared to quarter two of last year. As I noted earlier, that included a scheduled turnaround at the Burnaby refinery. Our refinery really had a great quarter, as did our integrated logistics business, which benefited from a diverse product portfolio and strength in the propane market. The composite utilization at Burnaby was 97%. This included 1,700 barrels a day or 25 million liters of uh, biofeeds or co-processing. This matched our previous quarter's record and keeps us firmly on track with our 100 million liter full year target for 2021. And co-processing continues to help us meet our carbon compliance requirements in BC, which I will discuss in a little bit more detail in a moment. Corporate adjusted EBITDA expense was $30 million, that was up $12 million relative to quarter two of 2020, reflecting variable costs connected to volume recovery and reduced benefit from COVID-19-related wage assistance programs. Turning to slide six, I want to provide some additional color on the Burnaby refinery dynamics, considering very strong result uh, and giving the rising compliance cost in the BC market. So first on the left side of the, of, the, of the page is our standard kind of indicative Burnaby crack spread indicator, which is normalized against the trailing three-year average at any time. And we've highlighted a few areas since 2018 which drove, up, uh, which drove upward volatility and how it then reverts back to mean. For instance, you may recall that in quarter two of 2019, 
that was characterized by some unplanned outages along the west coast in the U.S., which increased local crack spreads and resulted in very strong supply results for us. Our Burnaby refinery operations have pro proven to be extremely consistent and resilient, with volatility tending to deliver upside. The name of the game on the West Coast continues to be reliability, which our facility has proven to be reliable. BC is a unique market, and one of the recent trends we have witnessed is the rising cost of compliance in the, province, uh, in the province's increasing low-carbon fuel requirements, or LCFR, which are some of the most stringent regulations in North America. You can see on the left side that the indicative crack spreads have already started increasing, and part of that increase is a result of rising, rising refined product prices which reflect the rising cost of the low-carbon fuel compliance. The full cost of compliance is not reflected in the simple 5311 crack spread, which considers crude as the only input. This impact is impacting uh, most refineries in North America. However, we have a unique advantage at Burnaby Refinery through our co-processing initiatives, which helps us to meet BC's low-carbon fuel requirements. The chart on the right helps to depict our co-processing advantage. For every liter of gasoline and diesel sold in the BC market needs to comply with BC's LCFR. And most economic, and what everyone does first, is to blend ethanol and biodiesel into the gasoline and diesel streams. This form of blend, blending hits technical limits, and the resulting mix is still not compliant. What comes next is where our Burnaby team creates additional value. To meet the low carbon fuel requirement, HDRD, or renewable diesel, is typically blended into the diesel stream to bring down the overall carbon intensity of fuel. HDRD is relatively expensive at nearly three times the price of diesel at the moment. And so where co-processing comes into play and why it's important to us is that it's about two-thirds the cost of purchasing HDRD and offsets the majority of HDRD otherwise required. And by continuing to optimize this activity, we aim to replace as much HDRD uh, as possible, capturing additional margin as we go. So compliance costs will continue to increase over time, but we believe we are differentiated in the BC market. All in all, Burnaby is a strategic asset within our portfolio, which offers robust margins and an economic advantage in meeting the BC low-carbon fuel requirements. Turning now to slide seven, and there's a lot on this, but we want to talk about the recent acquisitions. As Bob already mentioned in uh, his opening remarks, we have announced a close 12 transactions since reporting our Q3 2020 results in November, uh, adding to approximately $800 million of Can uh, Canadian dollars of acquisitions taken together. And that would be equivalent of our fourth largest acquisition, if we look at it that way. Our corporate development and asset teams have done a fantastic job seeking out businesses that complement our strategy and add value for our shareholders. After accounting for equity issued under our dividend reinvestment plan at the market program and a small amount of vendor take-back, the transactions are immediately accretive to distributable cash flow per share and approximately 8% accretive after reflecting synergies and other enhancement initiatives. Our acquisitions have been directly aligned with our stated growth strategy, as you can see on the slide. They provide integration and organic growth opportunities and strengthen our supply advantage at highly attractive returns. 
Enabling this activity is the strength of our balance sheet. During 2021, we witnessed interest rates that have reached multi-decades low, and we have taken advantage of this opportunity to capture the financial benefits of the low interest rate environment by redeeming over $1.4 billion of bonds and issuing nearly $2.2 billion of new bonds at lower interest rates and extended maturities. Additional amounts were used to help fund a series of acquisitions and transactions and reduce the amounts drawn on our credit facility. At the end of March of 2021, we amended our syndicated credit facility to expand the available facility and extend the maturity date. The result is that Parkland now does not have any bonds or its credit facility maturing until 2026. In addition, we have kept our total funded debt to credit facility EBITDA leverage ratio within our desired range below three and a half times and in line with the previous quarter while funding our growth program. We believe that we are in excellent financial condition to reach our ambition for a 2 billion adjusted EBITDA run rate by 2025. So with that, let me pass it on to Donna to speak about our organic growth and EV charging rollout in BC. Thanks, Marcel, and thank you, Bob, for inviting me to join today's call. Good morning, everyone. Before jumping into our recent announcement regarding our ultra-fast charging network in British Columbia, I would like to spend a few minutes reiterating some of the organic growth success we have had within the Canadian business and build on the commentary Marcel provided in the previous slides. The robust performance of our C-Store initiatives has grown convenience gross profit and demonstrates our commitment to creating food and convenience destinations for our customers. As you will hear later, we believe this will underpin a compelling offer for EV charging customers. In the second quarter, we delivered strong same-store sales growth of 8.6%, excluding the impact of cigarettes, and negative 3.2%, including cigarettes. Just as a reminder, cigarettes are a low-margin business for us, and in Q2 2020, cigarette sales were higher due to closures of competing sales channels due to COVID. I am very fortunate to be running a strong and resilient Canadian business and to have a team always focused on making it better. We are becoming increasingly sophisticated retailers when it comes to data and analytics. We developed these capabilities through COVID and have enhanced our category management process, priced more effectively, and optimized the makeup of our merchandise offering. This is paying off as evidenced by the approximate 25% increase in convenience store gross profit relative to last year. Alongside our compelling customer value proposition, we believe these capabilities can drive robust organic growth in our convenience store business. In addition, we will continue to progress the customer offering initiatives which have underpinned our success through 2021, including our Canadian on-the-run expansion and partnerships with locally relevant, high-quality fresh food offerings. We expect to accelerate the rollout of On the Run in both our company-owned and dealer retail locations, targeting another 60 Canadian On the Run sites in the next six months. After opening our second Triple O's location in Ontario, we plan for two more Ontario sites and two Western Canada sites by the end of the year. Taking a step back and looking at our convenience store performance over the last two years, we have followed up a great 2020 with an even better 2021. We are immensely proud of high single-digit growth, excluding cigarettes, for two years running. By staying focused on our customers, 
We believe we have the right formula that leverages our enterprise capabilities and generates a superior value proposition. Turning to slide nine, it is my pleasure to talk about the latest focused investment we have announced as part of our approach to energy transition. Building on our co-processing activities at the Burnaby Refinery, our decision to launch British Columbia's largest network of ultra-fast EV chargers is an exciting and natural next step for our business. We have been disciplined about where we position our charging network and thoughtful about our customer proposition. Let me take a couple of minutes to share how we think about this. At a macro level, North American EV penetration is in its early phases. Adoption looks different and is moving at a different pace in different markets. We see emerging EV adoption when we look at new vehicle sales, particularly in BC, which leads the way across Canada with 9% of new sales in 2020 attributed to EVs. For context, the Canadian average was only 3.5% with EVs making up less than 1% of the total fleet. This market fundamental was the main reason we selected BC for our ultra-fast charging network. In addition, we have many other competitive advantages in the province, including an extensive high-quality Chevron retail network featuring on-the-run convenience stores and Triple O's restaurants, which we believe are a great fit for charging stations. We put our customers' needs and convenience first when designing our charging network by embracing three core principles. First, our chargers will be located where our customers need us, at 25 locations extending from BC to Calgary, in and around major cities and towns and on major highways, helping reduce EV owner range anxiety. Second, we will ensure our customers have quality site amenities. EV charging customers have unique needs, often requiring more than a 20-minute stop. Our existing retail footprint in BC is well suited to this dwell time, as our customers can shop in our on-the-run convenience store, eat in our exclusive and delicious Triple O's restaurants, which cover all day parts, and be productive with our complimentary Wi-Fi. Third, we are delivering maximum customer efficiency, as our ultra-fast chargers will be compatible with most EVs and deliver an 80% charge in around 20 minutes. We are on track to open our charging network by the summer driving season of 2022. By leveraging our digital and analytics capabilities, we will learn about customer behaviors and preferences, such as charging frequency and times, backcourt and QSR visit trends, interaction with our loyalty program, and differences between the various geographies. This will help us refine our model and customer offer, meaning that where we see emerging demand, we will be well positioned to scale further. I'll now pass it back to Bob to wrap things up. Great, thanks Donna. That was a great overview and it sets the tone for what we expect will be a strong second half of the year for Parkland. Underpinned by the resilience of our portfolio, our strong base business, ongoing economic recovery, and contribution from acquisitions gives us confidence to raise our full year adjusted EBITDA guidance to 1.25 billion plus or minus 5%. Due to anticipated timing of capital spend, including some COVID-related delays, we've also reduced our 2021 expected capital expenditures by a combined 50 million to 350 to 500 million. To wrap things up, before we invite your questions, I'd summarize by saying that I'm extremely proud of the team for delivering another strong quarter 
and for a great half for a great first half of the year. First, we delivered strong operational performance and continued to see recovery across our portfolio. Adjusted EBITDA of $322 million reinforces our updated full year 2021 guidance, and we maintain high conviction in a strong second half. Next, progress on key organic growth initiatives and a pipeline of accretive acquisition opportunities have us firmly on track with our ambition for $2 billion of run rate adjusted EBITDA by the end of 2025. Our growth program is firmly on track. Finally, we continue to approach the energy transition in a disciplined way with focused investments to bring us up the learning curve and position our business for long-term success while generating superior returns for shareholders. Backstopped by our financial strength, we have tremendous momentum heading to the second quarter of the year. Thanks to the entire Parkland team for all their efforts to deliver a great second quarter. I would now like to turn the call back to the moderator for questions. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, we will now begin the question and answer session. Should you have a question, please press star followed by one on your touchtone phone. You will hear a three-tone prompt acknowledging your request and your questions will be pulled in the order they are received. Should you wish to decline from the polling process, please press star followed by two. If you're using a speakerphone, please lift your handset before pressing any keys. One moment for your first question. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today. Your first question comes from Ben Isaacson with Scotiabank. Please go ahead. Thank you very much and good morning and uh, congrats on the uh, beat and raids. Um, just a bit of a long-winded uh, question here. When I look back over the past four or five years, and if we skip 2020 because of COVID, it looks like Q2 fuel volume in Canada is consistently flat or about equal with Q1, usually around 2.4, 2.5 billion litres. Now we've just seen 2.1 billion litres, two quarters in a row. I'm a little surprised by that. I would have thought in a recovering environment, we would have seen some uh, further progress in Q2 over Q1. So my question is, based on that data, is it fair to say that the recovery is over in Canada? And if so, is it a 12 to 15% decline in volume that's the new normal for Canadian fuel volume? Thanks, and I'll, have, I'll ask my second question after. Okay, great, thanks. Thanks, Ben, and look, appreciate the question. I think uh, um, a couple things to keep in mind. First of all, markets have been in lockdown, both in Q1 and Q2. And uh, and so the current volume that you saw in Q2 is not representative of full recovered volume. You know, I would say, um, you know, we have seen an offset in the margin environment for that, but volumes still are light compared to 2019. And we expect to see uh, more recovery here as markets have opened up and restrictions have, have come off. Great, thank you. And then my follow-up question is: um, You said in your release that you've spent uh, 800 million 
over the past eight or nine months to what you think will be an 8% uh, accretion on a post-synergy basis. When you look back over the past you know, five, seven, 10 years, is that 8% accretion roughly in line? Is it improving? Is it um, getting worse? Is that something that we should be modeling going forward when we think about um, uh, how you spend capital to get to your $2 billion run rate by the end of 2025? Yeah, look, the, the, uh, what we're, we're well, the, the businesses that we're currently purchasing and the synergies are, that we're getting are consistent with uh, previous years. And, and so that accretion is certainly representative of, uh, you know, the type of M&A that we'll do and have been doing here over the past several years. That's great. Thanks so much. Your next question comes from David Newman with Desjardins. Please go ahead. Good morning, folks. Great, uh, great results. Thanks, David. Uh, first question, I guess, for, for Donna. So, um, Donna, you've got a, a target of sort of 60 uh, uh, OTRs over the next six months and a, an ambitious 1,000 target. So maybe you can talk about uh, the cadence of the, of the rollout of the OTRs over the next 12, 24 months and how the EV chargers might fit into that in terms of when you're developing um, or converting a site, how the, OT, how the OTR EV chargers might fit into that in terms of your footprint. Hi, David, and thanks for your question. Um, so we're really excited about the results that we're seeing from our OTR conversions. And so, as noted, we'll be accelerating and doing another 60 sites uh, before the end of the year. We then are looking to kind of ramp it up uh, and continue, continue to dial it up really over the next 12 to 24 months with the intent of completing uh, for our company network the conversions that we have planned for um, our company sites. Further, we have added a, a new dealer on the run offer program that we will be rolling out here shortly and the aggregate of both of those programs we believe will help us get to the 1,000 site target by 2025. In and response to your... Go ahead, go ahead, Donna, sorry. Oh no, you had asked a, a second question about the uh, EV chargers and how that plays in. Correct. I mean, yeah. I, I think, as I noted, in my comments, we'll be watching what happens with EV penetration across the markets, and we believe that our, our sites and our on-the-run offer uh, and the, the number and the range of sites that we have will be well-positioned for us to advance EV charging when we feel the time is right and the penetration uh, justifies it, and so we, we feel that it's a natural link. It makes infinite sense. And my second question is just, you know, 8. 6% X cigarettes is a is a pretty pretty solid number, and um, obviously the offer in the backcourt is is resonating with consumers. But as you look at your sort of data analytics uh, as to what is driving that and the conversion of front court to back court, what in the in, in your arsenal of things like Journey, uh, the, obviously Triple O's, things like that, what what appears to be really resonating? with consumers and and what i'm really driving at here is now we've moved into this or morphed into this hybrid world um how can you make the c store that much more relevant in kind of a uh, in a hybrid world going forward people working from home and from the office and kind of a mix 
So the, the beauty of our, our model and our small store format is that we are able to be extremely agile and flexible as we see the trends move. And so what we have observed in the last few quarters is a bit of a shift, I would say, back to kind of normal uh, C-store uh, goods. So, for example, our beverage offers, whether it was packaged beverage, hot beverage, frozen beverages, we delivered quite strong results. Further, the center of store categories, things like candy and snacks, our automotive fluid and health and beauty, all of the, the standard categories in the center of the store, we've just seen uh, some really robust and good good growth. Part of that comes from you know what consumers are looking for and then also for our execution around being in stock, having the right products in the right positions so that our customers can access them. Excellent. Thanks so much, folks. Great results. Great results overall. Your next question comes from Peter Scalar with BMO Capital Markets. Please go ahead. Hi, this is a Chang filling in for Peter. Um, my first question is, can you give us some more details about the on-the-run rollout in the U.S.? Um, how are you upgrading the stores to the on-the-run standard? How, many, how does the stores differ from the Canadian on-the-run stores? And kind of what is the timeline going forward? Yeah. Um, hi, and, and welcome. You know, that's uh, a good question. We are uh, pushing the on-the-run rollout in the U.S. Uh, we now have two sites that are open. Um, you know, the, the, the look and feel from a branding perspective is consistent with the Canadian business, although there's not a small little maple leaf on the logo. And, uh, and uh, you know, but the sites in the U.S. are different. I mean, they tend to be larger. Um, there's a consistent uh, um, beer and liquor offer that we don't have in most markets in Canada. And... Uh, and then also um, most sites have food um, directly incorporated into the site. So, um, so a bit of a different offer down there, but consistent with the look and feel. Uh, we're also in the process of rolling out our uh, loyalty program in the U.S. and, uh, again, making it very consistent with uh, what we have in Canada. Um, you mentioned that you're incorporating food inside the store so it's not like a qsr attached to the c store so like you're going to have a real food program uh, we do have a food program um, uh, in the u.s and we'll continue to roll that out as we roll out uh, the on the run brand and uh, look we have that in many of our existing sites that we've purchased in that market so this is kind of like a reverse synergy that you've adopted from some of your previous acquisitions. Is this like a commissary model or what, like how does no, the food pro program no, work? No, it, it's, it's done through a supplier. Okay, understood. Um, and my second question is in terms of the M&A landscape, obviously you guys have been doing a lot in the U.S. and, inter and in the international segment. Um, can you guys give us like kind of some color on the runway in those two geographies? Um, obviously, in the U.S. is very fragmented. So can you just give us some um, more ideas on that? Yeah, no, for sure. And consistent to what we've telegraphed in the past. I mean, the U.S. is our highest growth business and will continue to be so. And it's largely M&A driven. And the type of uh, um, transactions you'll see are very consistent with what we've done. 
you know, as you've indicated, it's a very fragmented market, and um, you know, we always pride ourselves on having a very deep and broad pipeline of opportunities. Um, we do see opportunities in in the international business, both within our current operating areas and also in adjacent markets, and we'll continue to pursue those. Uh, you know, I would say the frequency and and uh, um, of those trans or the the opportunity set is less than we would see in the U.S. Uh, we also did announce a transaction in Canada, so we've always talked about where we do have opportunities and have white space in our network we will acquire and you know we're really fortunate to acquire uh, Crevier um, in in Quebec which uh, you know fills out our business quite nicely there okay great thank you your next question comes from Neil Mehta with Goldman Sachs please go ahead hey good morning Bob and team that the, the first question is just on, on the EBITDA guidance raise for 2021. Can you talk about the components that went into it and how much of it was driven by, by the fuel side of it relative to uh, the supply side of it? Um, yeah, so the, the raise is, is on the back of good performance year to date. And also, you know, we continue to see the business perform perform well and expected to do so into the back half of the year. We've seen consistent and, and good performance across our business and expect to see that here uh, into the back half. You know, the one thing that I would remind you is that we will be having a turnaround uh, in Q4 in our refinery and the facility will be down for uh, three to four weeks during that period. Thanks, Bob. And the, the follow-up is just on fuel margins in general. In a rising crude price environment, often when we think of fuel margins getting fuel retail margins getting squeezed, uh, you've been able to hold them in a little bit better than I think what the market would have anticipated. You want to just talk about how you see um, uh, fuel mar margins playing out from here in an environment where a firm crude price uh, is sustained? Yeah. You know, again, I always am very careful to predict uh, fuel margins because uh, the market, uh, you know, we, we, we are in a competitive market. Um, you know, I would say, and, and you know, Donna can, can pick up on this, certainly in our Canadian business, we have done a lot of work on the digital side and on the uh, developing um, uh, pricing algorithms that we believe have helped and, and provided a sustainable difference. Um, you know, that being said, uh, you know, I can't predict the margin environment going forward. Uh, the U.S. has been a bit tougher from a margin perspective. Um, you know, we did see a, a bit of a pinch on the way up, but that's uh, leveled off now. And uh, our Caribbean business is held in quite consistently where the, you know, the dynamics in those markets are quite different. A lot of the markets are have legislated margins. And so we don't see the same volatility in the marketing business that we would typically see in other jurisdictions. Um, Donna, did you want to comment on some of the work we've been doing in Canada? Sure. So I think, um, you know, as Bob noted, the margins move with the market dynamics, and we aim to remain competitive, you know, with the best offerings for our customers. We have invested quite materially in data analytics and in our team's capability to optimize 
you know, volume, margin, dynamics, and we believe that this will help us really in any any market location or condition. And I think we've seen seen the results from that, and so we're we're quite pleased with the tools and the skills that we've developed. Nicely done. Thank you. Your next question comes from Kevin Chang with CIBC. Please go ahead. Uh, th thanks. Thanks for taking my questions, everybody. Um, maybe if I could just turn to your, your cash conversion. You know, if I look at, and, and I appreciate all the moving parts on the end markets uh, you, you service, but if I just take a, a high-level look at, at your cash flow from operations before changes in, in working capital, and you, you're trending at least in the first half of this year, you know, at almost 100%. Uh, and and pre-pandemic, you, you were consistently you know, sub 70%. And, and so, you know, as we think through the recovery, just, just wondering, are, are you, do you expect a step up in, in cash flow conversion here or core cash flow conversion to, to remain high or, or is there anything you point us to that would suggest maybe some slippage as, as the recovery takes hold? Yeah, why don't I just provide a couple of comments and I'll pass it over to Marcel. You know, again, the, the cash flow that we saw in uh, the TTM has been quite strong. And, uh, you know, again, there, and what it does is it shows, again, the underlying resilience of the business, but also the flexibility that we've had to manage our cash flow through the volatility that we've seen over the last 12 months. I'm going to turn it over to Marcel and he can comment more specifically on the trend. Yeah, so. Um Great question, Kevin. So the, uh, we, we continue to focus on the cash flow from operation. Uh, as you know, margins, uh, already commented, margins are strong, volumes are picking up, so we see that. Uh, so when you look at our cash flow from operation, I will just point out that we have made some presentation changes as well in this quarter where the interest costs on leases have moved to financing. So I just want to point it out as you do your quarter over quarter comparison. But other than that, we con you know, I would say we continue to see you know, kind of robust cash generation out of our business. And of course, the more retaily we become, the higher the cash conversion uh, will be in our uh, in our business. No, that's that, that, that's very helpful, Color. And just my, maybe my second question, you know, when I think back to, um, I guess, your, your, your last investor day and, and you called out the, the $2 billion of EBITDA opportunity, you know, you laid out a, a pipeline of, of of, I guess, opportunities you saw you could execute against on the M&A front. Just wondering, as you sit here today, just, just given, the, I guess, this transition, uh, this energy transition, and I guess the, the accelerated uh, growth in EVs, or at least expected accelerated growth in EVs, you know, how, how does that pipeline look now versus versus what you saw maybe, I guess, two, two three years ago when you initially put the $2 billion EBITDA target out there? Has, has that expanded? Are, are more people looking to sell their business because they don't want to you know, put the capital in, you know, as we think about this energy transition? No, uh, you know, I would say our, our, you know, when we look at businesses that we acquire and, and you know, the, the pipeline of opportunity, uh, you know, I would say it's consistently, certainly for owner-managed businesses related to succession and uh and you know and people wanting to monetize their business uh, we're not seeing the pace accelerate at this point you know i think what parkland's been able to do particularly in the us as we've grown our presence is just the opportunity set has, has grown significantly and you know as we've continued to add rocks 
which we're now up to four, you know, each of those comes with uh, um, an opportunity set that wouldn't have been uh, prevalent prior to that. So, um, you know, and then the other area that we do see opportunity is from larger companies and doing carve-outs. You know, great example, although small, is the aviation business we bought in in uh, um, in the Puerto Rico from Total. Um, so, you know, both those, we do see activity in both those areas and continue to pursue those. And again, you know, I'll reinforce that uh, the bulk of these transactions are done on an exclusive basis. So. Right, well, that, that, that's great color. Thanks, thanks for taking my questions here and have a great weekend, everybody. Your next question comes from John Royal with JP Morgan. Please go ahead. Hey guys, good morning. Thanks for uh, taking my question. Um, so on um, the refinery, um, the economics of co-processing versus uh, buying in HDRD and that uh, two-thirds cost savings I think you called out, um, somewhat dependent I would assume on the cost of the feedstocks. Um, so can you, can you talk about your feedstock costs and how they're trending and um, will these new facilities that are scheduled to come up in California compete for and, and potentially bid up these feedstocks? Yeah, um, good question. And again, you know, one of the keys is flexibility from a feedstock perspective. And, uh, you know, it's something that our team continues to work on. And we do have good access to, to feedstocks that are uh, within Canada. But I'll pass it on to Marcel to talk specifically about uh, some of the economics we see. Yeah, so what we've typically seen, John, is that when, you know, when the compliance costs are going up, so for instance, the RINs in the U.S. go up, that it typically correlates well with how HDRD is pricing, so that generally pulls it up. And then what we also see is that the feedstocks that we are relying on, like canola or tallow, also typically go up, but that the relative, um, you know, the relative spread, if you wish, between the most expensive compliance pathway and the co-processing, that that stays constant. So there's always going to be an advantage there. Uh, Bob already made the comment on diversifying, uh, you know, the feedstock, uh, the feedstock itself. So at the moment we do canola and tallow primarily. There's a number of other feedstocks that we are looking at and testing that have uh, kind of better uh, uh, or lower carbon intensity. So they're even better as a co-processed feedstock as well. And so we're looking at all of those. But I would kind of think of these compliance costs as when they go up, they all go up, but the relative advantage of co-processing uh, kind of remains within that range that we've actually talked about. Great, thank you, that's really helpful. And a um, number of questions on, on M&A this morning, and um, I wanted to maybe take one from a slightly different angle. Um, the 800 million announced since November, and, and the announcements keep rolling in at a pretty rapid pace. And so. Um, the question is just trying to get a sense of your overall corporate resources. Um, is, is this type of pace sustainable or perhaps even could be accelerated um, from here when you look out over the next several years? Um, or as you move into kind of the, the uh, integration and synergy capture phase on these, will there be kind of a natural slowdown in the activity level? Yeah, it's, uh, it's a good question. So, um, you know, as you're aware, we do have our own uh, M&A team within Parkland. And, uh, you know, that team has lots of experience and has done many reps. So, um, you know, the other thing is a lot of the smaller ones, um, you know, are, are, you know, they're, 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 they're easier to do. So they don't require as much uh, effort uh, on the front end, you know, in terms of 
So, so no, no issues on capacity. We can certainly handle the pipeline and continue to grow at the pace that we've uh, um, that we've been doing. You know, I would say uh, your question about integration is 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 important as well. And you know, part of the beauty of Parkland is our regional structure, and that each regional has uh, um, resources within it to uh, do things like integrate businesses. Um, and in the U.S., where again we've um, been doing the bulk of our acquisitions, you know, the other thing is we do have a common um, IT, IT and operating system um, um, within each region, and that makes these integrations, uh, um, you know, quick and and uh, um, they can be done uh, fairly rapidly and efficiently. We also have. Uh, designated people within each business unit to uh, do the integrations and make sure that uh, we can put them on our platform um, as as we do them so again you know we've uh, you know and again certainly in the US uh, we've built a lot of this over the last uh, three years the team there has really uh, um, learned how to do these and and keeps getting better and certainly don't see any constraints there on the resource side to be able to continue the pace that we're at and, and accelerate it. Great, thank you. Your next question comes from Vishal Sridhar with National Bank. Please go ahead. Hi, uh, thanks for taking my question. Um, going back to the refinery, is there a target comp composite utilization rate that management is pursuing for 2021 and longer term, um, and uh, does management want to solely rely on co-pressing for compliance, or will there always be HDRD in the mix, or is it more about the flexibility of pursuing based on prices in the market? Yeah, um, good, good, good question. And and let me just comment on the latter question, and then you know I can hand it over to Dirk here, who can talk about our utilization. The uh, um, you know, in terms of our, our our path to compliance, so the one thing we continue to invest in our co-processing capability, so our throughput of uh, renewable feedstocks will continue to grow, and that is the most cost-effective compliance pathway for us. Um, so expect to see that grow, and, and certainly some of the capital that we've put in this year is is focused on um, um, on growing that and getting to you know roughly 10% of the throughput of the refinery converted over to uh, renewable inputs. So, um, so that that's our, our primary path to compliance, and it is very economical compared to the more expensive alternative of importing renewable diesel. You know how that affects utilization. Um, you know, perhaps Dirk, you can comment on that. Um, sure, and and thanks, Bob. Um, good morning, Vishal. So, if we look at uh, just on a crude throughput on normal operate uh, normal operate, uh, operations, we've uh, typically been running at sort of that 91 to 93 percent utilization rate. If we get up to 10 percent of uh, co-processing through there, that would be additive to it. Uh, the thing to think about is that we're always trying to optimize our economics uh, to the extent that uh, we can de-bottleneck 
and get ourselves 100% uh, reliant on the co-processing so that we do not need to buy any uh, further HDRD. Again, we will be looking to optimize. So the uh, co-processing would be additive to that, so you'd be just adding on the throughput of the HDRD. If you think about uh, where we're at, displacing about two-thirds of the, the need for HDRD, you could add another, uh, given the current crude throughput, you'd be adding about another third uh, to the um, throughput of uh, co-processing, so you'd be adding about another 800 barrels a day. Uh, so just think of it in those kind of terms. It's, it's additive to the uh, crude throughput. Okay, uh, thanks for that color. And um, maybe just changing topics here. Last quarter, and even in the prepared remarks, management was, was talking about uh, the, uh, the tightness in labor and, and uh, various inflationary pressures and its ability to accommodate uh, those pressures. Wondering if you, you can give us an update just on, on the cadence of those pressures sequentially. Are, are they abating or are they continuing to magnify? Well, it depends on the jurisdiction. So, uh, as we talked about in the uh, in our initial comments, we do see some pressure in the U.S. Um, we have, uh, um, for the most part, been able to pass those costs through. Um, you know, they are both in our distribution business. Um, you know, where access to drivers has been tight, and also in our convenience business. Um, but, uh, you know, so far we've been able to uh, effectively absorb and pass those through. Okay, uh, thanks for the color. I appreciate it. Your next question comes from Michael Van Elst with TD. Please go ahead. Hi, good morning. Um, I'd like to circle back with Donna on the uh, in-store, same-store sales, because the two-year non-cigarette number, uh, of around 15%, I guess it is, is, is quite impressive. And I'm, I'm sure that the products that were being sold or the categories that were doing well this time last year were probably more along the lines of the fill-in shopping, taking over from grocery and, and other areas. Uh, whereas this year we're seeing a rebound in the car wash uh, and the food service. But I'm curious as to how how well you did in those categories that that picked up last year during the pandemic, and if you've been able to hold on to a lot of that business. Thanks for your question. Uh, you know, I would say some of the differences we've seen, if you look at categories like packaged beverages or perhaps the chips or the snacks, is that last year we were seeing a, a, a bigger increase in take-home type packages as people were using our convenience stores more for kind of grocery fill-in and then also some of the, the grocery categories. And what we've seen this year is a bit of a, a shift back to the single-serve uh, type of products. And so, uh, you know, really the, that would be an example of the types of, of trends that we're seeing. I mean, certainly some of the the categories last year that when COVID first hit and we weren't really sure what to expect and we shut down, you know, like a coffee service, for example, because of the uh, importance of safety to our consumers, that certainly come back nicely as we've, you know, reopened for business. And so it kind of, you know, varies across the different categories. Each have a, a bit of their own story. Okay, thank you. And then I guess for Bob, um, Pretty much every quarter, it seems like you point out 
strong performance in your integrated logistics business. So I, I was hoping you could give us some more detail uh, on this and, and I guess give us some ideas of what Elbow River is doing uh, well and, and the benefits you're extracting from the Houston Trading Office. Yeah, um, you know, both uh, both our rail our, our rail business, which Elbow runs, has has held in quite well. Um, you know, compared to 2019, we're we're down in that segment. But um, you know, I would say the beauty of that business is the fact that we're in multiple commodities, and uh, you know, we've seen robust demand in the refined products. And in the um, the crude business has started to come back. That was off, um, and LPGs have been uh, um, consistent. I would say year over year. Uh, in terms of uh, the our our um, marketing business that we've set up in Houston, um, it continues to grow. Um, it continues to support both of our. Um, our, our U.S. business and our uh, Caribbean business, and and you know certainly in the um, in the Sol results, you can see the strength of our supply and wholesale uh, in that business, and and it's been a key contributor to uh, to the results in, in that business. And in the U.S., uh, you know again as we continue to get more volume. And, and um, participate in more markets on a wholesale basis. You know that office continues to add a lot of value. So seeing seeing good growth uh, in the underlying cash flow out of uh, the Houston office, and I would say our our rail business, you know, run by Elbow, has uh, you know is holding in there, and uh, certainly expect to start to see that grow here as all these commodities come back in a consistent fashion. Perfect. Thank you, Bob. That covers well, you've covered everything. Thank you. Your next question comes from Derek Delay with Canaccord. Please go ahead. Yeah, hi guys. Just uh, just one for me. Just on Journey. Um, can you just give us an update on on how Journey is going in terms of uh, perhaps penetration of Journey users and and you know do they tend to have a higher average transaction size or higher C store conversion rate? Yeah, um, thanks, Derek. Thanks for the question. I'll turn it over to Donna. Yeah, thanks, Derek. So we are very, very pleased with the performance of Journey, especially this year uh, as the business is you know, coming back. We're now well over 2 million members. We recently launched our biggest ever marketing campaign, and we are out you know, talking to customers about the Journey program in a, in a pretty material way across TV, radio, and digital. Uh, I think, you know, as we look at the actual performance of how, you know, how Journey members shop in our stores uh, and fuel up, we are certainly seeing, you know, better better basket size, if you will, higher fill-ups and, and increased baskets from our Journey members. And so the loyalty program, I would say, is working as intended. Okay, great. Thank you. Your next question comes from Steve Hansen with Raymond James. Please go ahead. Yeah, hi guys. So just two quick ones. I know we're running long. Uh, just quickly on the recharge restart station program. Uh, just quickly, I might have missed it. Do you have a total cost estimate for the program rollout? 
Uh, and just as a related question, you know, how do you expect to charge for a 20 minute charge up? Uh, and just, I guess, as a related point again, is how do you drive loyalty through the journey program? Are you planning to offer some sort of discounted offer equivalent to your seven cent program that you have on the fuel side? Yeah. Um, hi, Steve. Uh, it's Bob. Um, let me start it off and I can uh, um, hand it off to Donna here. Um, you know, the, the rough cost of that is roughly $10 million. And, uh, um, you know, the uh, part of the, the, the purpose of standing this up is to learn and, and to develop our customer value proposition. You know, we certainly intend to integrate it into the journey program um, and, and certainly see it as an opportunity to have a, a customer on our site for 20 to 30 minutes you know, while they get, uh, while they, they recharge their vehicle. So, uh, you know, see lots of opportunity here. And the purpose of, uh, you know, the, the network in BC is to A, tap into growing demand, but also to, to develop this proposition um, and make sure it resonates with the consumer. Donna, did you want to add? Uh, I mean, I think you covered it quite well. You know, really, as we're getting ready to stand it up, there will be a number of variables that we'll be contemplating, including how to charge, you know, what that structure looks like, how uh, we'll incent the journey members to to come visit our sites. And so I think more to come in that space. And then, you know, we also will have the ability to test and learn as we go, really, and see what, what resonates. Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, as we've looked at the market and the, the consumer need, we're trying to address two things. One is range anxiety which, uh, you know, again, because, because we have a, uh, a comprehensive network in, in BC, you know, we can offer the consumer a charge point uh, every 100 to 150 kilometers along major roads. And then the second thing is time to charge. Um, and again, with the ultra-fast chargers, we can get, uh, you know, depending on the size of the battery, but a typical battery will charge 80% within 20 minutes which again we see as another advantage in that. That's helpful. And just, just one last one, if I may, is just I noticed the red carpet car wash, I believe it was, tuck in subsequent to the quarter. I think it was a dozen standalone sites, uh, roughly. Just, it strikes me as a unique but still complimentary purchase, but just curious how you view that sort of standalone car wash opportunity in the U.S. I know other parties in the public arena are, are chasing that market down as well. Is it competitive? How does it fit with your margin profile, et cetera? Thanks. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, the, it's the, the, the name of the business is a bit deceiving. It is first and foremost a convenience network with a good car wash offer. So it's not uh, a separate car wash offer. It is, uh, um, you know, it's, it's a great retail network with great convenience stores uh, in it. Okay, very helpful, thank you. Your next question comes from Elias Foscolos with Industrial Alliance. Please go ahead. Uh, good morning, and uh, thanks for taking my question. Uh, I want to focus a bit on the renewable side of the business. It uh, appears that there has been some appetite for renewable entities, and I was wondering, um, is there a possibility for carving out some parkland assets uh, into a renewable entity? Is that something on the table or just doesn't fit? Um, you know, that's a, that's a good question. Um, I'll, I'll, 
Yeah, no, it's a great question, and I that's not on the table for now. You know, we think that the businesses in in the renewable space, which is of course a broad category, but when we talk about, for instance, EV charging or bioprocessing, that those are complementary uh, and synergistic to our existing business. So we'll look at it uh, through that lens. Okay, thanks. I th those were the two assets I, you know, was kind of thinking of as uh, you know I listened to the call and have seen some recent market movement. That's it for me. Thanks very much. Great. Thank you. Your final question comes from David Newman with Desjardins. Please go ahead. Oh, sorry, guys. This is a very quick follow-up. I know it's late in the call, but um, if I'm thinking about your, um, your, your certainly integrated uh, supply uh, division and how it might be able to leverage a situation, when you look at the potential for an Enbridge Line 5 shutdown, I would imagine your supply division could benefit from that in terms of movement of product uh, to Eastern Canada. Any any thoughts on that as you see that if that if that does get shut down? Um, yeah, it's a good question. I mean, we're working with the industry uh, to uh, make sure that uh, we can continue to supply our customers in this critical market. Um, you know, first and foremost, making sure that that line stays open. Um, you know, in the unlikely event that uh, there is a disruption there, you know, I would say you've, you've hit it on the head, our, our logistics and ability to move product around um, and also working with our, our major supply partners gives us confidence that we'll continue to be able to supply the market with minimal impact to our, our customers. Excellent. Thanks, Bob. There are no further questions at this time. Please proceed. Great. Well, thank you. Really appreciate everybody's uh, participation today, and look forward to having uh, to catching up again soon. And uh, want to wish everybody a, a great rest of the summer. So take care. Bye. Ladies and gentlemen, this concludes your conference call for today. We thank you for participating and ask that you please disconnect your lines. Have a great day. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today. Thank you for listening to TSX Quarterly. If you enjoyed the cast, remember to leave a good rating. And remember, for any additional inquiries, please consult the company's investor relations section on their website. See you next time.